Everyone, hi, hello. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is Your New Best Friend. I'm sitting here with someone that 13-year-old me would be pinching herself, and adult me is pinching herself, too. This is happening. <laughs> Corin Nemec, actor, artist, writer, produ- you pre-produce, yeah, yeah. producer, director. Like the, the smattering of, of, of clapping there. <laughs> a little Brent. smatter of clapping. Great. Oh, hey, look at that. I feel like, I'm gonna, I, feel like I just uh, did... Uh, did some poetry, a poetry jam or something right there. I feel like we uh, need the full. Let I feel like you guys bring it up. You guys, come on. Oh, there they are. There they are. Okay, they were bashful. Everyone. Thanks, everyone. No, I, they, well, they probably remember the days of when I was on uh, the the TV series Webster when we had to stop filming in front of a studio audience because Mam and George had such bad potty mouths and hated each other. I did not know so that they were probably being quiet in the background just in case you know it was going to be traumatizing right. to me to hear live clapping. Wow! So were your eyes and ears opened by Mam and George's potty mouths? No, you know, I'm a product of the 70s. Uh, my mom was, uh, you know, uh, a hippie and uh, was in the music business. She was a graphic artist uh, in the music business. She did uh, poster design for rock bands and stuff like that and then ended up uh, uh, working in the theater business and, and then found herself out here working with the Pantages and then oh, worked cool. at, over at Capitol Records in their graphic arts department and stuff. So, I mean, at a young age, I was backstage with... Uh, with the likes of like Joan Jett and the Black Hearts and Hall and Oates and Jay Giles band and uh, you know every other band that nobody in this day and age has heard of, <laughs> but uh, but it was it was pretty cool. It was pretty wild. I got to uh, in fact for my eleventh birthday, I got to go see uh, Iron Maiden Power Slave tour because Iron Maiden was my favorite band at the time, and uh, and me and my best friend Wesley Bruner we were dropped off at the concert and just went alone to 11 year olds at the show. I don't think that just... happens ever anymore. <laughs> no, my mom would probably be arrested for child endangerment. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, uh, but it was amazing. It was, I mean, it was an incredible concert, but, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, I was, I, you know, my, my eyes were well open before ma'am and George ever hit the scene. <laughs> Did you grow up fast? Um, you know, I, I would say yes and no. I mean, in a way, I grew up fast because, you know, the, the, uh, my mom also expected out of me and my sister to have, you know, to, to be responsible around the house. So in terms of being responsible to, you know, we knew how to cook our own dinner by the time we were around 11 years old. We knew how to obviously clean our rooms in the house and all of the other stuff. So that, that aspect of it. But, uh, but also in the same respect, we were allowed to remain young. You know, because my mom wasn't uh, my mom wasn't against us being, uh, uh, you know, being kids and Mm. and being creative and thinking creatively and uh, and all of that. So in a way, uh, uh, in a way, yes. And in a way, no. How old were you when you started acting? Uh, I started acting professionally when I was 12. Yeah, 12 years old. So that's that's pretty young. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, you know. Uh, and again, it was just, it was purely, I wasn't pushed into it. I didn't have, you know, crazy stage parents or whatever. I didn't, uh, you know, it was all of my own, uh, own doing. I had the support of, of, uh, my mom and the support of my dad and, and whatnot. But, uh, but it was really, you know, 
it was all my own personal desire to you know to pursue that and uh and it was uh, and it took off very quickly i mean i i i started in an acting class when i was uh uh when i had just turned 12 called center stage la i studied there for about six or eight months around about that time period and then we did a showcase for agents and managers i got an agent right away and literally the very first audition i ever went on i landed the job it was for a suzuki motorcycle commercial and uh and it ended up playing uh during the um the Super Bowl, the 1986 Super Bowl, whoever played in that, I have no idea. But my commercial played in it. <laughs> That's right. Halftime. You played in it. <laughs> yes, exactly. And my uncle happened to be uh, on vacation in the Caribbean. He was just at some random beach bar, but he was watching the game. And suddenly I popped up on the TV and he's like, that's my cousin. I mean, I mean, sorry, that's my nephew. That's uh-huh. my nephew. And then everybody in the place thought that he was, you know, crazy, uh, which which he is a little bit. But, right. uh, but, but that time way. he was telling the truth. Yes. Yes, Absolutely. And, yeah, he's, and, he. Uh, oh, sorry. No, no, he's, you he's go. A, no, he's a, he's the uh, he he likes to he likes to have a, a bit of drink, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we can always tell when he's had one too many because he starts repeating the same joke. You know, he'll like he'll have that one good joke that he's come up with recently, and he'll tell it to you early in the evening. You'll be like, "Oh my, that's so hilarious!" And then about halfway through the evening, he'll come and he'll tell it to you again. And then later on in the evening, he's you're like five five times deep into the same joke, and it's just oh, you just have to keep laughing like you've never heard it before. <laughs> now you're a dad. Do you have dad jokes? Um, you know, I really should, uh, cause really, re- I mean, I grew up with my uncle. I grew up with nothing but a bunch of really bad dad jokes cause that was his specialty. Uh, you know, but his were like the long ones, you know, the ones where it's like, it's not just a, a quick, you know, line, line, and then bam, you get right. the punchline. It's like you're, you're there for a good five to eight minutes, you know, oh hearing my God. the whole tale. And that would and, repeat uh, throughout the night. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It was exhausting. Uh, but, uh, but no, I don't, I don't have a plethora of dad jokes, although I, I really should. I, I really, really should. It's, yeah. I feel sad now that I don't. Uh, have any good dad jokes for you? I well, should have researched this ahead of time. Twenty-five and thirteen. So I right. That is correct. I think that you are. Um, you still have time. You still have time to embarrass them with your jokes. Oh, that well, yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, well, I don't have to embarrass them with my jokes because all they have to do is see some of the bad sci-fi movies that I've done <laughs> over the years, and and those are those are those are embarrassing enough. <laughs> so uh i was super into teen magazines tiger beat bop uh, big yeah. bopper yo yeah uh, the big bopper yeah i think was it jeff was it you or was it someone else who asked what was the difference between bop and big bopper and i said honestly i don't know but I they think were- it was the page count i don't know <laughs> <laughs> just it was just a bigger bop yeah it was just a bigger bop yeah i would hope that big bopper was bigger you almost have to it- be yeah, but I don't. I don't know that it was. I think Renee I think, asked that question. Okay. Yeah. Well. Anyway, you were in those magazines. I was. So let's see. Based on what I remember of you, and by the way, just in case you're curious, which was my coronemic, the thing that I was super into. It was. I know my first name is Stephen. Yes. I watched it over and over and over. Dark. Dark story, even darker real life story. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's you know it is quite sad. The the uh, the gentleman who 
the the actual Steven Stainer, who in the miniseries, if you ever watch it, there's a scene where I'm being brought home for the first time, and he's one of the police officers that's beside me in that. That was kind of his cameo. Uh, so he was around oh, the I set. Didn't know that. Yeah, so he was around the set a little bit. And, you know, the, the fact that he turned out to be such an amazing guy, that's the crazy part about it. Because, you know, they, they didn't really portray his, his home life as difficult as it was before his kidnapping. They kind of like wa- watered that down a little bit. I didn't know that it was. Uh, he had a t- he, it was, it was a little bit of a tough environment to grow up in in the first place. Yeah. And then to be kidnapped by this sick, uh, this sick, sick bastard, um, you know, uh, and held for that many years, and the the un- unbelievable uh, nature of what he experienced, you know, to come out of that, and to not be, you know, a an alcoholic or you know have have drug addiction issues or to have really heavy emotional or psychological right. issues, you know, it it's a true testament to him because he had you know he had a great family, he was uh, he had a loving wife, he was a loving husband, he was. Uh, he was, uh, taking the, he was, he was, uh, studying to become a police officer. So he mm-hmm. was in, in, uh, you know, the academy or whatever to, uh, to, uh, become a, a cop. And, you know, he was very passionate about wanting to, you know, be out there on the front lines, uh, to, to protect, uh, to protect and serve. And, uh, and it was just, you know, for, for his life to have been snuffed out like that. It was he by died a, in a motorcycle uh, he, he was hit by a drunk driver, um, who uh who actually was in the country wasn't supposed to be in the country um even that's a stupid touchy subject right now but yeah. uh but uh but yeah that he and so he was uh he was hit and killed um you know in in the uh, late afternoon hours the night before the um the uh, uh Emmy awards cuz I was nominated for an Emmy the show was nominated we ended up losing to uh uh that big western um some big Western miniseries Deadwood? that was on back. No, no, no. Dead- this is way before no, no, Deadwood. This is way right? before Deadwood. Okay. <laughs> oh my God, this is the um, 80s. Lonesome Dove. It's Lonesome Dove. Yes, Lonesome <laughs> I Dove. Can't there I got you it. Go. My mom was. Yeah, so they cleaned into that. house. They cleaned house. So we ended up not not winning anything, which which was really a drag because I I really if I had won, uh, I I really wanted to dedicate it to him, obviously, and and the same thing goes for everybody else, uh, the other departments that were nominated and whatnot. But uh, but yes, yeah, so he you know he was he was uh, taken from us the night before the Emmys. It was tragic. It really uh, it really put a uh, you know um, a real shadow over something that right. was you know kind of celebrated. But uh, but that show, I don't think that the ratings uh, that that show got have even been beat to this day. Oh wow! Uh, it got a. It was a, a the first night that it aired. It was a forty two share, which means forty two percent of of television viewers across America were watching it. The second night that it aired, because it was a two part miniseries, it was forty eight share. So forty eight percent of American wow. viewers were watching that miniseries. Because usually the second part doesn't get I no, think, and it as just much. jumped. Yeah. It just launched. You know, from there, I think that you know the 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 forty two percent that watched the first one was like everybody, you've got to <laughs> see this. It's you know it was so intense and it. uh it really sparked. I mean, from uh, the the feedback that I've gotten, even to this day, you know, uh, even from uh, from people who are are older who had kids at the time, you know, they're just like, oh, I just if if I hadn't seen this, it just it, you know, I wouldn't have you know watched my kids as closely as I did right. and all this stuff. And it just it just brought it, it cast a a really uh, uh, a good light on on a subject that nobody likes to talk about. It's never you know that that kind of subject matter children and and even if you saw the numbers today of how many kids in America disappear every year 
I mean, it's it's jarring. I don't recall exactly what it is, but I know that it's 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 in the tens of thousands, if not higher, every year of kids that go missing and are never found in in in, in America. Right. And it's absolutely shocking because nobody, you know, no, where where are they? Where are they going? Who who's taking them? What where they? You know, because it's only it's only every every great great now and then does one of these kids turn up years later mm-hmm. so it's just it's it's still something that that people definitely need to uh to pay attention to but nowadays you know kids spend all their time inside playing xbox or playstation or whatever you so can just you do know find my phone just, and then yeah you need to find, find my, my yeah exactly you know you just have to worry about them playing online games and having some you know some weirdo on there trying to chat them up. It's like it's, there's weirdos everywhere. Let's get onto a better subject. Well, the, well, let's just go darker for one second. The other dark, darker <laughs> real life aspect yes. of that was that Steven Stainer's older brother turned out to be a serial killer. Yeah, that was a trip. Yeah, he. Well, I mean, they say serial killer, but he really only killed two people. I think it was the beheading okay. part of it that was kind of off. Turned out to and, be a killer. Uh, yeah, and, and you know, oddly enough, if I recall. I'm, I was like, watch me end up getting the mini series of this too. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you played Ted Bundy. I did. I played Ted Bundy, which uh, which was really uncomfortable. I, I you know I was excited about playing that character at first, even as dark as it is. But by like day four or five, I was so over playing that guy. I mean, he was just disgusting. Well, we kind of jumped into that and did some of the darker stuff first because it was location oriented. So so right out of the gate, I had to do some of the you know the allusions to necrophilia and you know the abuse of some women and things like that and just and it was just so dark and disturbing i was it was i'm i'm really good cuz i'm not a method actor or anything thank god for that right <laughs> uh but so I, I i'm good at shaking off characters and stuff that i play and that one was a tough one to shake off at the end of every day mm-hmm. you know it was it was it was gross and that but i played another one uh uh, uh, Richard Speck uh, oh, in, a, yeah. in Chicago Massacre, and that character, that guy was a sadistic, completely sadistic wacko. But you know, the, they didn't really touch on his 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 speed addiction. But he was into popping pills, and he was an alcoholic. But he was really heavy into uh, Reds, as they used to call them back then. And uh, and he was just, but he was he was legitimately crazy, which was fun to play because he was literally out of his mind and and remained out of his mind until his dying day. But but uh, Ted Bundy, on the other hand, was extremely sane, very calculating, mm-hmm. and was not crazy at all. You know, people look at him and go, "Oh, that guy was crazy." No, he wasn't crazy. That's what's so scary about him. He was not crazy one bit. You know, the guy right. knew exactly what he was doing. But he did used to have to uh, drink himself into his killer mode sometimes. You know, he'd need some liquid courage to go about his his his. Uh, his activities, which is just, I mean, good Lord. What a <laughs> lunatic. Thank God that guy's not on this planet anymore. So here is what I remember from what I read about you, and let's see what's accurate. For a while, you were corn corky Nemec because your grandma called you a little corker. Yes, yes. A corky kid, as it <laughs> a is. Corky a corky kid. Yeah, yeah. It's a, I mean, in the South, it's sort of, you know, corky is kind of like quirky. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and for whatever reason, they just kept calling me quirky. Well, my mom and dad divorced when I was one and my mom really didn't like my dad that much. You know, they get along fine now, so it's okay. But, uh, so, you know, my, my birth name was Joseph 
uh, and uh, and my mom just refused to call me Joseph. So she just used to despite always, your dad. Yeah, you basically. So Corky was what I was nicknamed, and then and then uh, and she always wanted to name me Corin when I was born. That was the name that she wanted to to uh, uh, to give me. And uh, and so when I started when I started acting, I really didn't want to be called Corky. And uh, my agent was like, well, what's your name? I said, my name is Joseph. And she was like, eh, it's kind of boring. And I was like, what? <laughs> and she was like, well, is there anything else that we can call you? And my mom was like, Corin, we can call him Corin. And I was like, I've been hearing that my whole life anyway. So I was like, look, just, just call me whatever you want. Just, you know, don't call me late for set, you know, and uh <laughs> And, uh, and so I really didn't, it didn't really bother me. I, you know, so the corn corky thing, you know, that stuck for a while. And, uh, and after I, I, you know, I ne I honestly never really liked it, but I was just, I didn't pay much attention to it either. I really didn't care that much mm -hmm. what anybody called me. Uh, I, I was just happy to be doing what I was doing. So, but after, uh, I know my first name is Steven, that was the last, um, project i did that was credited as corin corky in quotes nemic which is just such a weird way to credit <laughs> oneself i mean if i was a, a professional stuntman or you know a surfer like corky carroll or you know i don't know maybe maybe a uh, a mime or you know a puppeteer or something corky could have lasted my whole life right you know corky the mime <laughs> i could i could still get away with that i yeah. think yeah so, wait, do you think of yourself as Joseph or Corin? It depends. I mean, uh, you know, to be honest, when I first moved to L.A., my, all my paperwork said Joseph. So when they were doing roll call, they would, they would read Joseph off. And so people that I, I grew up with here in Los Angeles from many years back uh, would call me Joseph. And, uh, but then when they'd start coming around, hanging around my house, my mom and sister were calling me Corky. So it was kind of like, I was like, nah, you can stick with Joseph. It's fine. <laughs> so I have some people that call me Joseph. Then when, when I started going by Corin professionally as throughout the, through, you know, people who I met, um, from those years on all would call me Corin. And then, uh, so it really depends on, on who you're around, who you're with. Like if you're with my family, uh, especially when I'm back in Arkansas or somewhere back, uh, back in, uh, in the Carolinas or Virginia where a lot of my family lives, uh, it, there'll be a lot of Corky being thrown around. Um, if I'm out here in Hollywood with a lot of my buddies, there'll be a lot of Corin going on. But then if I'm with some of my old high school friends or some of my newer friends that I have in Texas, they'll call me Joseph. So, I mean, I just kind of answer to whatever, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Just... <laughs> You're all of them. Yes. Okay. Now I know, but you already confirmed this, but I do know this from way back. Born in Little Rock. Indeed. Uh, into graffiti and rap. Yeah, I, I, well, I got into, into the rap music, the breakdancing scene when I was living in Atlanta, when, you know, during the time period my mom was in the music business there. And, uh, and there was a, um, a really popular um, roller skating place called Sparkles. In, in Atlanta that uh, had a dance floor in there, a dance area called the Launch Pad. And I had me and a couple of my buddies, we had our own little kind of like breakdancing crew. My name was Kid Cruz. <laughs> and uh, we'd go in there, we'd battle other kids, you know, breakdancing and stuff. And, uh, and you know, this is in the early 80s, you know. Um, and um, I, I would take my name Kid Cruz and I'd kind of write it in little bubble letters or whatever because that was the art form that, that was – associated with with breakdancing and um and I wasn't thinking much about it. I was always an artist I always drew but I didn't I wasn't I didn't really see 
what graffiti art was until I moved to LA. So I, you know, I had my breakdancing thing going on then, you know, and, and was into the, the whole rap hip hop movement and ended up in Los Angeles. And, and, uh, a couple of guys that were in, I was, I ended up in a graphic arts class in eighth grade and two guys that were in there, this guy vision, uh, that was his graffiti name. And this other guy spy 1000, uh, both of them were were already deeply into the graffiti scene, even in, in at eighth in eighth grade, at twelve years old or whatever. You know, I mean, these guys were really really into it. And 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 when I saw what they were drawing, I was like, oh, that's what this is supposed to be, you know. And uh, the really wild style lettering and the the b boy characters and all of that. And uh, and I immediately gravitated to that because breakdancing at that point was passe. It wasn't like you know nobody was going to the movie theater and bringing their cardboard with them. <laughs> anymore you know and break dancing out in the parking lot like that was over uh, now it was like skateboarding and tagging and stuff you know so uh so i i really uh i gravitated to that really quickly and and uh those are the guys that i, I hung out with and stuff and uh and so even even in um even as being a professional actor it wasn't that i was living it was almost like being like batman you know it was like i had this this one persona that was you know uh all all hollywood and all of that and then mm. you know and then then when when the curtains closed it was like i'm off running 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 the streets with you know with my graffiti pals and uh and that, oddly enough that's that's how i ended up meeting uh uh, Balthazar Getty and uh, and David Arquette, who have been longtime friends of mine, you know, uh, ever since. And uh, but uh, but Balthazar was kind of scratching the surface of the graffiti scene, and I met him at a mutual friend's house uh, one day, and he saw that I was really into it, and so we hit it off. And then uh, and and then he had already known uh, uh, Arquette, who who was who was a very prolific graffiti artist. I I had already known who he was without knowing him. Uh, just from the streets and stuff, and uh, and so got to you know met him when I was a teen when I was a teenager uh, as well, and uh, and that was just a trip because also you know like Mickey Avalon for instance the rapper um, he's uh, he's a graffiti artist from back in the day, uh, and uh, and I knew him back then as well. I actually did the photos for his first album. Oh, cool! That's my that's uh, the, I did the photo shoot for all of that, and uh, so his first album cover is one of my photos, but. Uh, and uh, and then Seth Binzer, who's the lead singer from Crazy Town, he's he. I knew him from the graffiti scene, and Justin Warfield from She Wants Revenge. We were in the same graffiti crew when we were teenagers. Did you ever get caught? And, uh, is, it, is it okay? To yeah, ask I did. That? Yeah, yeah. No, I did. I did. Well, I didn't get caught red-handed. I got ratted on. <laughs> so me and my buddy uh, out in the valley, uh, we we had gotten we kind of grid we gridded the city out. You know, we would do these kind of grid patterns where we would go out and we'd like walk. You know, up Laurel Canyon. 10 blocks down victory you know six blocks back down you know to ventura boulevard and then back over to laurel canyon then we'd switch over to like now we'll do lancashire up to van owen then we'll do and we kind of gridded it out so pretty soon you know by the end of one summer we had like saturated the whole valley and then i started moving into la and everything but we came with this we came up with this really stupid idea that uh that the one way to get famous quick would be to 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 <laughs> I can't believe I'm telling this story <laughs> to to break into schools on <laughs> on Sunday night and we would vandalize the schools and we'd like do big like mm-hmm. one, and one of the schools we got we got inside and we did like graffiti like what what's called throwies which is a really simple kind of lettering style that you do that has fill ins and stuff we did those like on the lockers in the hallways of this one school and that was kind of the last straw and they ended up the, doing a, a whole newspaper 
newspaper article in the LA Times about me and this other guy. But did they know and it was you yet? That no, point? they put a $5,000 reward out for anybody who was willing to, to turn us over. And, and literally, I was like, you know, from being super famous, having your name in the newspaper, because I used to tag Chrome, K-R-O-M-E, and my, my buddy tagged Dapper, D-A-P-E-R. Everybody called him Daper because Dapper has two Ps in it. He's like, no, it's Dapper. It's like, it just, it just looks stupid with two Ps. But, uh, so, so, uh, yeah, we, we, uh, from, from the day before, I was in 10th grade uh, at that time, and he was in ninth grade, actually, and we, we both got arrested out of, out of our classes. I was in my math class. And that was at the height of like the LA gang wars and stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. we had great, what year was this? This was 1988, I guess. And uh, yeah, uh, that sounds about right. Like around, around 1988. And uh, so I, uh, I was sitting there in my class, and like, I mean, we had so many gangbangers at our school. It was saturated with gangsters. And uh, what school did you go to? At North Hollywood High. Mm-hmm. And and so when the cops came into the class, I was like looking around going, oh, which gangbanger are they here for? And they're like, Joseph Nimick. I was like, wait a second. <laughs> hey, you know, so uh, I ended up for, fortunately, um, you know, they uh, it was a first offense type deal. I don't know how I ended up getting such a, uh, a, a slap on the wrist, but I ended up getting 180 hours of community service. And uh, the one big drag about it was is that they gave me and Dapper our own police escort, and we had to drive around to every single place we ever tagged and paint over our own tags. Oh wow! And uh, and we had you know and we had spent you know a greater portion of a year and a half saturating you know uh, uh, our sphere of influence with our names, and it took you know I mean we were up, we had some fame as they call it, you know. And, uh, and that was rough because they said that if, if, uh, if they saw any of our tags, you know, after we finished this whole community service, that they were going to assume that they were new, even if they weren't new, mm-hmm. and that they'd come and arrest us. And I was like, eh. <laughs> so, I mean, I took them everywhere, every dark alley, every place I could think. I mean, and we spent all summer doing this. And then, uh, one time it was pretty funny. We were, we were doing, well, a couple of things. We, we were up in Van Nuys. Uh, and we were, we were buffing down these alleys and they had gray buff paint on there before and they had given us this beige buff paint. And so we, we were buffing everything, but we decided just to buff our names, you know, chrome and dapper and these gigantic, you know, buff letters and then like, and tried to leave them there. And then the cop walked down there and saw him. He's like, no, that doesn't count. I'm like, but it's buff paint. It's buff. They're like, no, no, no. So we had to even paint that over. But, uh, but then there was one time we were, they, they, uh, you know, it's, we call it, nickname it Buff Patrol, basically. You know, you're out there having to paint over stuff. But they, they took us to, um, these, uh, these kind of projects, uh, up, uh, in, uh, in deep in, in, uh, North Hollywood, Van Nuys area. Um, and there was this, uh, this neighborhood out there called Vineland Boys. And one of their, you know, really, uh, beloved uh, members had uh, had been killed recently by by the authorities, and um, and they had done kind of a tribute to him on this wall, and they dropped us off there with no police, you know, uh, watching us or anything, and they were like, "You got you have to paint over this," and I was like, "I go to school with some of these guys." I was like, I told the cops straight up, I was like, "I'm not painting over this unless you guys are standing here with a gun to protect us. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing it." He goes, "You're gonna do it," and so he, he left. He left us there, and there was like a group of twelve of us or whatever, and like me and my buddy Dapper and a couple other people who knew what was up were like, "Nah," because as soon as like they broke out the buff paint, dude, all these gangbangers started coming out of the apartments and started coming. 
around. Dude, they started throwing rocks at us oh, and geez. everything. And I was like, so the cops came back like a couple hours later, nothing had changed. And they're like, what's going on? We're like, well, we told you. I mean, look at the guy over there. One of the guys got hit in the head with a rock. And he was just like, he was just some regular gardener dude who got caught for a DUI <laughs> and was forced to go paint over this crap. And, 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 and oh my God, it was just, so it did was you crazy. Not paint over that one. Um, they let you no, off? no. What the cops had to stay there and and what and, and guard, and guard everybody while they painted it over, you know. So was this happening concurrently with you getting some fame for acting? Oh yeah, absolutely. That was the that was kind of the crazy part about it because uh, you know I mean I was still you know I I mean I I had started acting professionally like I said when I was twelve and right. did the movie uh, Tucker. Oh yeah. Shortly after with okay. Francis Coppola. So I mentioned on so my show comes out twice a week. Monday is a one on one. That's this will come out Monday, and then Thursday there's a panel of us. And I mentioned on the Thursday show I talked that I that I was going to have you on the show, and I said that I had. Uh, I know my first name is Stevens, but I watched over and over. But I yeah. also watched Tucker enough to know that there's some like rhyme or or something that you said in the movie, and I remember jotting it down in a notebook. Oh, really? Do you remember it all? It was like a nursery rhyme or a poem or something like that. I can't remember either. I know you uh, you would probably have less memory of it than me. Yeah, I don't. I have no idea. Okay. Uh, what I feel that like it's was. it's somewhere. It exists somewhere. Yeah. I mean, on the tape, obviously, but maybe I IMDb. I don't know. <laughs> um, okay, so anyway, you had done Tucker, you said. Yeah, I had done Tucker, and I'd done other stuff. I'd, uh, you know, I'd done some some guest spots on some TV shows, and and then, like I said, you know, I mean, we- the last season of Webster, even though granted nobody really ever saw that, but uh, you know, the last season of Webster, I was I was like thirteen or fourteen, uh, you know, around that age then, and then uh, uh, and then I know my first name is Stephen when I was fifteen, and. Uh, um, and then did uh, What's Alan Watching, which was a really big oh, yeah. uh, uh, TV special with Eddie Murphy. And uh, it was like Fran Drescher and Peter Michael Getz and uh, um, Barbara Berry. And uh, and then obviously Eddie Murphy was in it and all kinds of other guest guest stars were in it. It was incredible. But uh, And then did uh, a, a huge feature film, which flopped horribly uh, shortly thereafter called Solar Crisis with uh, I was playing Charlton Heston's grandson. Mm. Uh, Tim Matheson was was the was in that as well. And Jack Palance and Peter Boyle. I mean, I got to work with some real heavy hitters. So going from like even like, you know, with Tucker, with Jeff Bridges and Martin Landau and and uh, and Fred Frederick Forrester and 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 uh, Mako and. uh, you know, such, such an incredible cast there. And then to end up, you know, working with some of these other actors on that. And then, I mean, you know, and then in, in the miniseries, The Stand, you know, just such a, a, an incredible cast of characters. I mean, some of the, some of the actors that I've had the, the, the privilege to work with, it's just, you know, Donald Sutherland, I did a sci-fi movie with him called, um, uh, uh, the, oh, geez, I can't even remember it now. But it was like in the early '90s. I did this sci-fi movie with with him, and like you know, so I've I've really had an incredible, incredible uh, uh, time working with some amazing, uh, you know, iconic actors over the years. You know. So then, was that? What's weird is, I don't like. There was no press about you having been arrested was there that was kept well i wasn't yeah and again like it wasn't really an arrest and plus you have to think back then it was you know it was much more 
uh, difficult to figure all of that stuff out. Right. There you wasn't know? Twitter. There wasn't Twitter. There was no TMZ. There was no none of that. I mean, if, 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 God forbid, if any of this stuff had existed back when I was a teenager, oh my Lord. Oh my <laughs> Lord. What would have happened to but me? But did the cops, <laughs> I mean, did the cops recognize you? Not so much. I mean, you know, uh, no, not really. I mean, like I said, it was kind of a Batman and, and Bruce Wayne sort of, you know, deal for me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, I really kept, uh, I really kept those worlds very, very much separated. Um, and then by the time I went on to Parker Lewis, I had, I had kind of really transitioned more out of not doing so much like tagging and vandalizing, but still doing graffiti murals, like going mm-hmm. to graffiti yards and painting and all of that. So you went straight. I was still, I, you know, sort of, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, there was a, there was a little bit of dabbling still in, in the other side of it. But, but for the most part, it was just about, you know, just sticking with doing the paintings. And, and I continued to do that, even though I kind of slowed up and, in, in uh, in some of the 90s, you know, I sort of like refocused and kind of just stuck with a lot of the acting. But it, there wasn't a year that went by when I wasn't doing some type of thing in, involving a graffiti mural or something like that all, all the way up until, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s when I ended up connecting up with some some guys that I used to paint with back in the 80s. Uh, from the same graffiti crew, and then we started painting again together in the early two thousands, and just and that just became it like revitalized my whole love for it, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, and so you know now I mean even up on Melrose I probably have five or five or six paintings you know in the back alleys and stuff of Melrose the backside of Posers. Uh, which is a which is a, a a kind of a British punk store. Uh, I did the murals back in the backside of that, and the backside of American Vintage, and uh, a few other places. And you know, and I'll be painting while I'm here as well. I'll, I'll, I already have some stuff lined up. And, uh, How did your mom react to the? Um I'm going to call it juvenile delinquency. I don't know if that's the right word. <laughs> it's too strong. My my poor mom. Oh my god. Uh, that woman. I'm surprised she has any hair left. <laughs> I uh it was, you know, it was really a crazy time because that that whole world like I said, it was the it was the height of the LA gang wars and it was really dangerous. Uh, to be doing what I was doing, at, especially at that time period. Um, there were, you know, I, me and my friends had been shot at numerous times. My car was shot up. That was very difficult for me to explain to my mom how my car <laughs> got bullet holes in it. Uh, that was when I was 16. And, uh, and that was crazy. I mean, that was really, it got to the point though, where it kind of like, you, you when you'd hear gunshots you just sort of duck a little bit and sort of like peek around and go okay they're done you know <laughs> like it wasn't even a big deal anymore uh but uh but it was uh yeah it was really really wild uh crazy times and uh and my mom really had to put up with a lot of stress and concern and worry for my safety mm-hmm. you know uh and uh and I didn't really, I didn't recognize that until many years later, you I know? I think kids can. Yeah, I didn't recognize it. Sometimes I think some kids, I think some, some, some uh, are sensitive enough to grasp that at a young age. Uh, but I, I, I had just, you know, dug myself so deep into that scene and it, it, it played such an important part of my, uh, my experience at that time that, 
I wasn't willing to abandon it for, for anything, whether mm-hmm. it was my career or anything else, even though, you know, there was the potential of, of some of that behavior jeopardizing, you know, my career at that time. Um, but, uh, but I just, I, I just loved it and I still love it. I still love, uh, you know, painting and, and, uh, and being a, a part of that movement. And that movement has really picked up speed and, uh, and there's, you know, there's stuff that I'm, I'm working on, on the creative side, uh, you know, to try and incorporate, uh, that life experience for instance. Oh yeah. I didn't, I didn't bring your book up, but I'll go and get okay. it. But, yeah, you uh, have a graphic novel out. Yeah, it's well, it's not a graphic novel. It's just a, uh, it's a, I call it a scripted novel because it's based on a script that I wrote. And, uh, and as an actor, it's been, I've written a dozen, a, more than a dozen screenplays or TV pilots or whatever. But it's, you know, for me, my experience has been it's very difficult to get anybody to, uh, to to look at any of that because they're just used to me being an actor and this is as oddly as odd as it is it's kind of a compartmentalized industry mm-hmm. you know uh, yes people break out and they kind of you know get their fingers in other pies and stuff I mean look at Keanu Reeves for, and Dogstar right right but uh, but I say that as a joke because <laughs> I think it was hard for him to be taken seriously as a musician. well it is well and yeah I mean Jared Leto is, is yeah. another example you know but his his band has just is really well accepted they do huge shows it's a really you know and and they're really great uh you know but when he first started doing that too it was sort of the same thing like oh god oh now he wants to be a rock but you'd be surprised how many different actors you know are into that whole you know band experience and all of that and uh and i think i mean even myself you know me and david arquette uh, both as argetti we had our own rap group when we were teenagers called uh, 13th floor on on my soundcloud site i have uh you know an old an old freestyle that we that we did back in the in the 80s that uh that is that is up on there and then we did then i i ended up working with some other buddies of mine along with balthazar as well he's an amazing uh music producer and dj and uh we ended up uh uh, making a band uh called uh uh, starship of fools which um uh shane mooney was one of the rappers in that who he's paul mooney's son Mm -hmm. the famous comedian uh and uh and then uh, a couple other buddies of ours and we uh and we had this whole it was kind of like a, a you know a far side type of vibe oh, you know what cool. i mean yeah and we did a whole entire album uh we developed an album with motown and our our point person at motown unfortunately uh ended up in a really tragic car accident and all of her projects got shelved mm-hmm. so the the rights to the music reverted back to back to me primarily and uh so i still have the the you know our whole entire album on 2 inch reel sitting in my closet right now, you know, and it's a fully produced album. I mean, we did it at a, at, at a really high end studio. We recorded, you know, uh, you know, a, a bunch of songs and, uh, they're really, I really love them. They were great. We did some performing around town and, uh, but, uh, but again, you know, it's oddly enough. And, and like, I, like I, I, I rapped on UMTV rap spring break Daytona beach. I did not know with this. the brand new heavies doing the backup music. Uh, with uh, Ed Lover and Dr. Dre during that time period and stuff. Yeah, that must have so. been really fun. It was a lot of fun. I, used to, I mean, I was really big into the the like I said the hip hop scene since I was really young. So uh, so when I would like go out to New York too, I I, I was good friends with Jerobi from Tribe Called Quest, 
and uh, this guy Dave from this crew called the Violators and stuff. And we would just go and, and hit up all the hip hop clubs and freestyle and get on the mic and kind of have sessions. And, you know, uh, it was, it, so it was pretty crazy. I mean, I was, I don't know. I, I think I was probably a lot ballsier than I realized, you know, when I look back on it, I'm like, Dude, because I, you know, some of the clubs I went to, people be like, "Dude, you went to that club?" Like, I was like, "Yeah, well, you know, my buddy Dave had the heater, so we were okay." Uh, you know. <laughs> um, what was your experience on Parker Lewis Can't Lose like? It was fantastic. I had such an incredible time on that show. We had such an amazing uh, cast and 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 crew and uh, the writers and directors, the executive producers, creators of the show. Uh, it was it was so much fun um, working on that. It was very cutting edge. It was ahead of its time. Uh, we worked crazy long hours on it. Um, it was a, it was a really really um, tough show in in terms of how many hours were spent working on it. Uh, and uh, and unfortunately the uh, uh, the network was sold over the time period while we were doing the show. So a whole new when Rupert Murdoch bought Fox. Uh, so in the hiatus of season two going into three, a whole new group of, of, um, executives took over at, uh, at Fox and television and all of that. And they, and they want, and they didn't see, they couldn't, they didn't understand our show because they weren't the champions of it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The old executives were. And so they wanted our show to, you know, to be toned down, to be more like 90210, to, you know, get rid of some of the crazy characters, give Parker a permanent girlfriend, all this stuff, everything that was, you know, completely opposite of what the show was supposed to be and they just forced it down our throats and wouldn't let us continue doing what we so we tried our best to keep it you know edgy and 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 wild for the third season but it was like impossible because they weren't letting us Mm -hmm. you know and uh and so the third season was our last season because we lost our core audience you know our core audience was there for what seasons one and two were and uh, season three, they're like, yeah, if I wanted to see this, I'll just watch 90210. And I don't want to watch 90210. That's why I'm watching this. So <laughs> so was that hard for you personally to be doing season three? Season three was really tough because I knew we were on on the, on the way out. I knew that, there, that the choice that the executives were making and I could tell that the energy was different on, you know, on set. We were still doing our best to, to make the best out of it. But, uh, but it was like, you know, it was like being on a sinking ship, you know, mm-hmm. you just knew that eventually, you know, it's going to go under completely and you just, you know, there's just nothing you can do about it except hope for, hope for a life raft. <laughs> so I read, which was the stand. That was my <laughs> life raft. I got that not too long after third season ended. <laughs> I read something. Tell me if this is right. Where you said that you had decided you weren't going to do another sitcom or another series after bef- Webster. Yeah. So I mean, what's when I because read that it, well, yeah. you had decided that before Parker Lewis? Yeah, I turned that was down Parker to- Lewis. Okay. I, well, well, I did. I did. Um, what's Alan watching? Which was really supposed to be a TV pilot, but Eddie Murphy Productions, the Eddie, Eddie Murphy and his guys over there, and the CBS executives literally hated each other. It was, uh, you know, from from what I understand, it was it was there was never a pleasant moment in the in the in the uh, uh, at the executive offices there. Uh, but uh, so they ended up just running it as a TV special. Um, at that time, uh, Clyde Phillips uh, was over at um, CBS doing Houston Nights, and uh, and they wanted him to do a half-hour comedy, so he developed Parker Lewis, but CBS uh, didn't didn't want to do the show. But he was a huge fan of 
of uh, what's Alan watching. That was kind of part of sort of, you know, he, he had, when he had seen that, he was like, oh, now this is some cutting edge wild stuff. And then he had seen the movie Three O'Clock High with Casey Shamasco and just, you know, the wildness of that, of the way that movie was shot, the uh, the style of cinematography and the quick writing and and the sound effects and all that. And so he he sort of, uh, you know, he, he, he developed his own idea with Lon Diamond as well and, and Robert, Robert Lewis, uh, um, those are the three uh, main executive producers on it. And they sort of were the three characters, uh, Parker, mm-hmm. Mikey, and Jerry. But, uh, you know, uh, Clyde was Parker, uh, Lon was Mikey, and Robert, poor Robert, was Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> How come you didn't think you wanted to do another series? Well, at that time, because like I said, the experience on, on, on Webster was just horrible. You know, the writing was, 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 uh, was bad. The experience was bad. Mam and George were, were absolutely awful. Emmanuel Lewis was great. That, that, I mean, he was just an, he was just such a pleasure. He was the one saving grace. Uh, working on that show and and the style of of writing for sitcoms i just have never been able to really fully embrace because it's like a line line joke there's a uh you know there's a rhythm to it you know and uh and i just that rhythm you just you it was like riding a a racehorse you know what i mean you had to be a jockey you have to be Mm -hmm. like you know a comedy jockey you know and if you're not riding that rhythm and getting and hitting those you know because something something that really isn't that funny you know besides the canned laughter it can appear funny because of the timing of it you know and uh and and i just it just it was very difficult for me as an actor and I just was, I just did not have a pleasant time. So when I, when I was heard about Parker Lewis, when they had first approached me about it, I didn't want to do it because I thought it was going to be a sitcom, a half hour multi-camera, you know, sitcom. And then, and when I, when I finally sat down with them and they explained to me, no, 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 three o'clock high, it's, it's a single camera show. It is a half hour. Yes. But this is what it's going to be like. It's, you know, and, and when they, and I was sold immediately. As soon as they said three o'clock high, I was like, a light bulb went off because I loved that movie at the time. And I was like, oh, yeah. Because, you know, they, a lot of people compare Parker Lewis to Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Mm-hmm. And this was developed before Ferris Bueller ever came out. Right. So, you know, it, it, it uh, I think that the, that, uh, Ferris Bueller coming out helped propel the show. Uh, but, um, uh, it, uh, it was just, it was an incredible experience. So when we got on board and, you know, the first couple of seasons was just, so dynamic and and uh and and so much fun uh and uh, and really cutting edge so it was uh you know it was it was great and and I did you know throughout each hiatus I would try and do something some kind of dramatic thing you know I did a couple of uh of TV movies um for the very first time which was a really good one and uh uh my son Johnny which was another you know heavy drama uh, about you know um uh, violence in families between siblings, sibling violence and mm. stuff that was based on a true story with me and Rick Schroeder playing brothers and, uh, and, uh, oh, the life force experiment. That was the other one that, that was the one with, uh, with, uh, Donald Sutherland, uh, with, you know, with that. And, uh, so I, I was, I was, you know, cause I didn't want to be, be thought of as just this comedy, you know, kid. So I kept doing the drama stuff in, in every hiatus and then, Shortly after uh, the third season of Parker Lewis wrapped up, you know, uh, when the dust settled from that, I ended up getting The Stand, which was uh, which was really fantastic. Um, and then uh, then not long after that, it was uh, Operation Dumbo Drop and then Drop Zone and um, 
And then just kept working, doing TV movies and guest spots and whatnot, you know, all the way up until uh, getting the uh, the series regular on Stargate, which unfortunately was short lived, but uh, but was a great revitalization uh, career wise in a lot of ways, especially in that genre. Uh, and then did uh, you know did a uh, small recurring uh, on on Supernatural a number of years after that, and just and so you know ever since then it's just been. Just one hustle after the next. It's it's. But it you know, seems like you've worked steadily. Yeah, I mean, you know, I uh, I attribute that to a couple of things. One, um, you know, I remained in acting classes all the way up until I was in my thirties. Um, I uh, from so from age eleven years old all the way until my mid mid to late thirties, I was in in acting classes, workshops, and whatnot. Uh, and uh, and I started studying with a, a gentleman named Manu Tupo in my mid twenties. And I studied with him all the way up until my, uh, my mid thirties, uh, until he passed away. And he had a company called the American repertory company. And he was just such a magical, incredible, uh, person. And he came, uh, I, you know, I found him, uh, Ernie Reyes jr. The martial artist and actor who was, uh, had been a good friend of mine since we were kids. I had done a guest spot on sidekicks, uh, his show with Gil Gerard back in, in 86 as well. And we ended up in high school together. Uh, and he was, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, I kind of lost my train of thought there, what I was saying. <laughs> you were talking about, I was saying that you worked steadily. Oh, yeah, no, that's what it was. Yeah. So he, he introduced me to Manu Tupo, er, Ernie Day, because he had already been studying with him for a year or so. And, uh, and I was just, you know, not only enamored by him as a being, uh, his, his, uh, his technique and process that he was teaching was was unbelievable i mean very few people could stick with his class more than eight months before they'd cycle out because he wasn't teaching a fast route to success in fact he wasn't even trying to teach you to become a famous actor he was teaching a way of life uh an artistic way of life which is what um well you know it's it's again it's it's a that's a, that's a loaded question because it goes really deep but you know he, his whole point was it doesn't matter what you do for a living you can live artistically you know it doesn't matter if you're a bartender if you're a lawyer if you're you know you can have an artistic experience in life mm-hmm. and it can change what your experience in life is it can really deepen it and enrich it and uh and it can save uh you know that that kind of experience can also save you from a lot of stress and turmoil and strife emotionally psychologically and all of that because there's you know uh pro- the the ways of processing that you know life is a creative uh, experience. It's a creation, you know, and that's what his whole point. You have to create your life daily. Every day you wake up, you have a new opportunity to create your life in a new way, a new experience. You know, even down to he would say, you know, silly things like, you know, if you're if you're an habitual, uh, if you habitually brush your teeth with your right hand and habitually wash your feet a certain way, he's like, look, the next day, like. Do it with your left hand for a few days. Do it, change it up to do something, try it and, and see what that, and oddly enough, even those silly little things like that, it changes. There's less like a psychological mm-hmm. shift that even occurs doing that. And then he had a thing called a, uh, a, a communion with nature, which was extremely powerful exercise where he, uh, and it was a requirement for, for his, uh, his class. 
and you would have to go out into some part of nature that was at least far enough away from the mechanistic world as you could get uh, within reason, you know, uh, uh, unless you just could get out of the out of the whole city altogether. But if you couldn't, then go up to the hills, go out to the beach, go someplace where you're at least a, as as far away as possible, and then and commune with nature. He was he was a, a Fijian. Uh, his he ended up getting the the role of the king of Hawaii in the movie Hawaii very randomly uh, when the um, I forget the director's name of it, but he was looking for the person to play the role. He was from the Fijian royal family. And and uh, the the director was walking through the airport in Fiji when they were down there trying to cast the part, and he saw his picture on the wall with the rest of the family, and was like, "That's the guy." And he was studying economics at Cambridge and in London at the time, or in in, in the UK at the time. And uh, at the I'm sorry, at the London School of Economics, not Cambridge. He was at the London School of Economics, and so they literally the guy literally flew over there, found him in school, <laughs> and said, "Next, you know, when you finish up, you know, this year." We're sending a car for you with this amount of money and a briefcase, basically, and we're flying you to Hawaii and you're going to play this role. And he was like, yeah, right. And so he kind of blew it off. And sure enough, when he finished up school, the car showed up. Guy had a had a briefcase with some money in it, and he was off to the races, and he fell in love with acting from that point. And so, make a long story short, he you know, growing up in in Fiji, he realized that there was a communication that that his that his uh, parents had, and that that he had when he was young with nature. His mother, they used to do this kind of ritual where they go out and they would actually feed the sharks in the shallows of the water you know, while they're standing there next to them and be feeding them and petting them and, you know, communing with nature. There's, and he said it's a language that has been lost, and that's why society has become so insane because we're now, we're, we're, we're now not communicating the way that we used to when, you know, eons ago, you know, and it's a, it's a communication that we need to have. Uh, and, uh, and that, that, that one, uh um practice alone for those years it was it wasn't until years later that i realized just how phenomenal it was you know um and how important that is even in in like you know how do you talk to the trees how do you talk to the plants how do you talk to the birds and the bees and the you know people who have pets can sometimes have that moment you know when they're communing with that's you know pets are of the natural world like we are but there's a communication that can happen even there in little bits but that same communication can happen with the forests and you know and and uh, and with the oceans and with the rivers and with the you know uh, et cetera. So that was, that was pretty, pretty miraculous. So, uh, you know, a lot of people who, who go into acting class here in Los Angeles, they're expecting the quickest route to fame and success and jobs as possible. And he's like, if that's what you're here for, then get out, you know, <laughs> and a lot of people did. <laughs> so to live an artistic life, what does that mean to you? Well, you know, it's, it's kind of a way of, of, in, in a sense, it's, for me, it's kind of a disconnect, you know. There's a certain, there, there, there is a lot to life that, that desires our attention, even, even as the mundane crap, you know. Taxes. I mean, good God, who who likes taxes? Nobody likes taxes. And it's like, even even when you get into like you know politics and all of this and just all this all the what, what could be considered the mechanistic aspect of the world, you know, just traffic trends, you know, anything that's that, that is that's that's taking stealing your mind away from you, uh, you know, people will 
effectually stop thinking creatively, stop creating their lives, and they become a, uh, the effect of their lives rather than the cause of their lives. Mm-hmm. So that's what he meant by it doesn't matter what your job is. Be the best that you can be. Be the best ditch digger that you can be. But when you're digging that ditch, are you doing it creatively or are you just doing going through the process so you can get the hell out of there? Mm-hmm. It's two different experiences. Is it you know, connected it's, it's with, very different. with mindfulness and being present? Absolutely. That's that that's that's sort of a, an effect of it, you know, because when you slow down enough to be able to just perceive, you know, even when we would do character studies, that was another big part of it was going out into public, sitting down and studying the characters around you. You know, so that you can, you can, you can take those traits from people. You can, you know, you can find, uh, interesting quirks and ticks that people have. And, uh, and so going to a coffee shop, going to Hollywood Boulevard, going to the mall, whatever, and you're just sitting there literally for hours, just fascinated watching people behave. And that's really, you get an aha moment doing that because you realize people are so caught in a routine way of doing and thinking mm-hmm. and behaving that, that, that you're not even sure if the actual authentic person is there anymore. You know, personality was another big thing that he was like, you can't, personality is a tool that we have. It's not who we are. We're spiritual beings. As a spiritual being, we can, we, we have the ability to interact with the world and with the mind, and the mind is our tool and our gateway into the world. But if you start becoming your personality, then you're already lost. If you start thinking you are who you think you are, you're already lost. You know, and that's why the, you know, he also dealt with masks a lot. The Commedia dell'arte, the, you know, the, 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 the dawning of different masks and different personalities. You know, you, if you can strip yourself of your own personality, then you have the ability to dawn the personality of any, of, of any character you wish. You know, because you won't be caught up in your own personality. You know, you'll find a mm-hmm. lot of actors who are fantastic actors, but they're, they're the same. Always, all they're right. always the same because they're being their personality as the character. Now, I, I, you know, that's, I, I've is done that, that a specific times, school? Like that's a certain method. No, right? that's or, just that's just people being their personality. Right. It's just easy. It's a, it's 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 easier to do that because I I I'm certainly have been guilty of it myself at times because sometimes it's just easier or the character is similar enough to myself where that's you know what I mean. It's right. logical. It's logical just to to, to behave that way. Of- yeah, in a way. But then but then I you know I I always try to introduce some type of you know, different type of quirk or, or something that's interesting or some type of depth because a lot of times there's not a lot written there and they also don't want a lot from you in a way. You know what I mean? They want you to be as normal as humanly possible for certain roles, you know? Um, I'm curious uh, what role of yours was the most difficult for you to get into? Hang on one second, though, because I need to tell you guys – Sometimes it's hard to find a satisfying vape that's simple and convenient. Hmm. Blue, who introduced vaping to the world, is now introducing MyBlue. MyBlue gives you all the satisfaction with none of the hassle. Just click and go. With MyBlue's easy-to-use one-click liquid pods, you can switch between flavors in seconds. A range of flavors to choose from. MyBlue's curved design makes it comfortable to use. Just 20 minutes to charge and you're set all day. It comes with a free limited lifetime device warranty called MyCare. Try MyBlue today at MyBlue.com. MyBlue.com. That's right. MyBlue.com. Another, another, you know, Stephen Dorff used to be their guy. I was in acting class with Stephen Dorff when I was a teenager too. I was into both of you guys back in the day. Me and him were buddies. He was in I Know My First Name is Stephen. Yeah, exactly. That's that's when we first met and then we Mm -hmm. ended up 
we were in the same acting class when we were like 15 years old as well. Uh, yeah, he's a great guy. Really, really, really fantastic guy. Uh, um, but, uh, yeah, my, my blue, I just, I just recently quit smoking three months ago. So, you know, how's it going? Uh, I may have to try some my blue. Uh, yeah, you may actually it's going fantastic. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, I, it's, it's been a lot less difficult than, than I imagined, but I think it was cause it was sort of, I had kind of an epiphany about it in a way, you know, oh. where, and it's similar to what we were just talking about the whole, you know, uh, uh, create, you know, living a creative life doing, you know, may, you know, not being the personality and all this stuff is like, you know, I, I literally was walking across the street to buy a pack of cigarettes and I was like, do I want the pack of cigarettes or do I want the pack of cigarettes? <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, who wants this pack of cigarettes right. really? You know? And, and I was like, well. My husband would describe that as horse or rider. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, totally. Who's driving this? Yeah. Totally. Exactly. And I, and that's when I was like, I, the real I in there doesn't want this pack of cigarettes. You know what I mean? The addictive personality I mm-hmm. wants it. And I don't want to be that personality type anymore. You know what I mean? That kind wow. of thing. So have you been uh, in it's therapy? It's been good. No, but, uh, but, um, some people might suggest that I should. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you seem very self-aware. Uh, I'm personally a fan of therapy. I don't know you well enough to, to suggest it. However, I also personally believe that everyone could benefit from it. Oh, of course. I, I, I completely agree. It all, I mean, it all depends on the, on the, the, you know, the, the, the person as well, you know. So what was the hardest role for you to, to like turn into? Um, you know, again, it's I, I would have to go back probably even to the, the Ted Bundy one, just the, you know, not that it was hard to get into or hard to perform it, but it was not a pleasant experience because I've played dark characters, you know, and, and those characters can be a lot more fun than mm-hmm. playing the good guy or whatever else. They, they, there's, there's a lot more interesting quirks and ticks and, and, and possible, uh, character choices with, uh, with those types of roles. And, um, and that, and, you know, the playing the Ted Bundy after, like I said, after about, you know, day four or five into it, I was like, you know, I could do without this guy. <laughs> and, uh, so it wasn't it was disturbing it was right? it was just yeah i just felt dirty at the end of every mm-hmm. day i literally felt, i was like i need a shower this is like yeah you know it was uh uh it, he was just such a filthy filthy person uh in, in so many different ways um the necrophilia thing too really threw me i mean we of course we didn't perform any necrophilia in the film but we alluded to it in mm-hmm. certain scenes and and i was just like oh my god this this is just I mean, whew. like, how close would you have to come to uh, simulating well sexual acts with mannequins or whatever? No, it wasn't. I mean, no, they had an actress who was who you know they 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 did makeup on her, everything right. to make her look like she had been like you know a week in the bushes or whatever. Oh, God. I mean, just you know, and just it was just the touching the, of the body, the sort of yeah. like the thinking of it, the fantasizing, and then and then sort of like going into. You know, in you know, going towards the body mm-hmm. as if something else is going to happen, and and the director didn't yell cut, and he was just waiting, and I was like, dude, <laughs> I was like, come on, he's, like, I just wanted to see how far you were going to go with. It. I was like, not very far, buddy, not yeah. very far. <laughs> That's so interesting. I never really thought about that. That like talking about which you wants the cigarettes, like the 
some version of you is like got to be rebelling against this whole idea. Like I personally would, I'm not into this. Yes, like, exactly. No, no. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I was, I, you know, I mean, I was fully committed to being the character in the moments that I was being the character, but, but there was, there was time periods where it was almost like, you know, like a dual, a dual experience where I could see myself doing the, playing the role and not wanting to be doing it as I was doing it, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Which was which was far out. It was like an outer body experience. And then, do you think of your kids seeing it? Does that come into your mind? My, I mean, oddly enough, neither one of my kids have really watched much of anything that I've been in. Uh, which, uh, which I, I mean, you know, it is what it is, you know. Uh, but I wouldn't want either of them to watch that. That's for sure. I definitely wouldn't want either of them to, to see that one. That's just too disturbing. Uh, but, uh, but my son actually enjoys acting. My, my daughter is studying to become a, uh, a professor of English lit. I mean, she's not, oh, cool. she's, yes, yeah, so she's doing her graduate program now. Then she'll, she wants to teach abroad for a year and then come back for her doctorate. Uh, so she can, you know, uh, uh, become a, prof- a legitimate professor, mm-hmm. which is very exciting to me. Uh, my son has a little bit of the acting bug, uh, from what I can tell. He uh, uh, he is in theater class at school, and he's very talented, uh, very naturally talented. Um, and you know, he's been kind of like asking me about, you know, why can't you give me an agent? I'm like, dude, I'm lucky I have an agent right now. Okay, <laughs> let's just get that straight. <laughs> you know. Uh, Do you and, have the same agent as when you were? No, God, no. no. Oh my God, I, I mean, if I if I could count the number of agents I've been through in the years I've been doing this, it's it's shocking. It's really shocking. Um, it's a it's a it's a it's a tough business. It's a very tough business. Uh, to not disparage the business that's given me so much, it's it's heartless. It's a ruthless, heartless business that um, that really doesn't. You know, it doesn't really care much for what happens to you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If it can get something off of you, if you're hot, if things are happening, it loves you to death, but it's not trying to help you along right. in in the in-between times. It really isn't. It's, it's a wild – I mean, anybody who has the wherewithal to – uh, to survive any amount of years in in Hollywood or or even in in the arts and entertainment business in general, whether you're in the music business or uh, whether you're a uh, a painter or someone like that, they they experience a lot of the same things. You know, you might be you know a successful painter, but you're only as successful as your last gallery show sold paintings. It, you know, if it doesn't, if your last gallery show isn't selling any paintings, well, guess what? Nobody's having any more gallery shows for you, no matter you, how good you are. Do you feel like you've had to fight to show them that you're still relevant? Well, for me, the the one thing that I that I, I was I was going to segue into this earlier, but you know, a lot of it had to do again with that with the acting teacher with Manu. Um, the the one thing that he said was, you can't be afraid to audition, or you can't have an ego about auditioning. Just because you've done this or that in the past and you have this inflated idea of yourself, <laughs> again, it goes back to the, the personality, the ego and all of that. If you're busy walking around thinking, it was one, he's, one thing that he always said was like, so he would say, so uh, how many people in this, in this acting class are actors? And, you know, people would all raise their hand and he'd be like, and he'd be like well, how many of you are acting? And people would kind of look around and like maybe one or two would raise their hand. He goes, w- what are you acting like right now? 
And they'd be like, what? I don't get it. He goes, he goes, you're not an actor unless you're acting. And when you're in the process of acting on stage or rehearsing or reading your script or breaking down your character, that's when you're being an actor. Otherwise, you're not. So if you're walking around life thinking you're an actor, you're delusional. Mm. You know what I mean? So he was like, you have to let go of all of that. Any success you've had, anything that you've done, all of that, none of that matters. All that matters is what you're doing when you're doing it. So, uh, and, and, uh, and coming off of the success of Parker Lewis and some other things and all of that, you know, it was the perfect time I needed to hear that because at that time I had been scratching the surface of that ego side that was saying, I don't need to audition for that. Look at what all I've done. They don't right. think that I can do that part. What do they thought? What are they crazy? What are, you know what I mean? That whole, you know, thing. And, and I, and I, in, in a, in about a year and a half or so, you know, of time before I started studying with him, I was going into that a little bit, like feeling that what that is all about. And I missed, I, I know I missed several probably really valuable opportunities had I just shut up, gone in and auditioned like mm-hmm. I was supposed to, uh, instead of having any kind of ego about it. And so I learned that, that, that auditioning is, a, is an opportunity for me to practice my craft. That's what he was saying. He's like, well, if you want to be an actor, then act. So you get an audition, then work on the audition, be an actor, go in, do the audition, be an actor, you know, and then walk out and go back to being, you know, whoever you are in life. And so the, the willingness to audition, no matter what I had done in the past was a huge factor that kept me going because, you know, there, there was, there was jobs that I went in and auditioned for where people were like, what is he auditioning for this for? You know, he's, I, and then I do the audition and go, Oh, he's, he's perfect for this. And I get the job, you know. Oh, you mean they thought you weren't right for it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, you because know, because they thought you were Parker the, Lewis because of the Parker Lewis hangover and all of that for sure. And also just like sort of like the, 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 this weird, you know, eighties, early nineties, you know, actor thing. You know what I mean? You, you kind of get jumbled into that world mm-hmm. of, of actors at that time period, the pop culture aspect right. of it and stuff. And, you know, oh, who wants to, and, and, and again, that's what I, that's what I kind of mean about the industry being a cold industry. It doesn't matter how talented you are, how good you are, how, how much success you may have had. I mean, you know, Judd Nelson is one. I, I love Judd Nelson. That guy should be working all the time right now. I should be seeing him in all kinds of stuff. You know, he was, he was, he, he was always such a, a talented actor and, and, uh, and uh, uh, there's, you know, there's a whole there's a whole list of them from that time period who, you know, these actors can't get shot, you mm-hmm. know, now in Hollywood. And it's crazy, you know, uh, uh, because they they a they have a fan base that's that you just that all you need to do is dust it off and it's there. You right. know, so and, true. and B, they're really talented at what they do. And uh, and you can plug them right in. But it's it's a strange fickle business. Um, so you know, again, my my willingness to audition because you know potentially, possibly, a lot of those actors they might have done what I almost did and shot myself in the foot by not participating in the business. You know, by not auditioning, and also um, there's uh, two you know agents and managers play a part in that as well. You know, I had heard years later. You know, I had heard from a couple of uh, of producers I worked with. Oh yeah, we had we had put an offer out for you for this or that. You know, back then I was like, I never got it, and they're like, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you know, it wasn't a lot of money and everything. I was like, Oh well, that's why because you know the agents or managers are looking at their ten percent right. of it and they're going, Yeah, no, he's not going to do that when you never even I never even got the script you know <laughs> across my desk. So it's frustrating. So you never know what's you know. So uh, I think that the the willingness to audition and also. Uh, developing relationships within the industry. That was another thing that I didn't do. I was so, 
you know, I I had always been like I said, I was always this Batman and Robin. I mean, this this Batman and Bruce Wayne type that uh, that. You know, I stuck, you know, with, with the buddies that I grew up with, you know, my graffiti pals, my this, that, and, and, and didn't really go out of my way to develop a lot of, of, of relationships within the profession that I was in. And that was a big error, uh, as well. And, uh, and in the last, you know, 15 years or so, I've, I've been a lot more, um, uh, aware of that and uh and have made some great friendships because of that you know people that are doing you know either producing writing directing or all of the above uh which is something that i i'm i i aspire to as well you know and um and it's and and have ended up with some really great friendships you know because of that and and that's and that has helped me to also keep consistency and working because i've been able to to do you know, uh, quite a bit of work with the same producers mm-hmm. or the same directors or, you know, uh, and, and so on. And, and, uh, and that e- even though they might not be, you know, the biggest projects or whatever, you know, in terms of budget and whatnot, you know, it keeps me, it keeps me doing what it is I love to do. It keeps me, uh, uh, relevant, you know, to a certain degree, uh, within the, within the, the industry. And, uh, you know, you live in Texas, Presently. I do. That's yes, yes. Is that a hindrance to working in LA? Absolutely. In, <laughs> in several in several ways because one, everybody's gone so 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 bananas out here when it comes to politics. And I hear I'm from Texas, like Texas. Oh my god, what's it like there? I'm like, well, let me go over a few things with you. I'm like, one, if you own a bar uh, in Texas and you want to allow smoking in it, you can still allow smoking in it. If you uh, if you want to drive a motorcycle without a helmet, you can drive a motorcycle without a helmet. Uh, if you don't want more of your money taken out of your paycheck when you work, there's no state income tax. There's really low property taxes. Um, and, uh, and, and if you want to be able to protect yourself and your property and all of that, you know, you pass some, uh, you know, a, a very strict background te- check and you do, uh, and you, and you do some training, you can get a concealed weapons permit to protect yourself and all of that stuff. And I was like, I'm like, who has more freedom? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's really strange. Uh, I found that, uh, in living there for an extended period of time, there's oddly enough, I I experience so in 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 certain ways a lot more freedom. You know, the only thing that Texas doesn't have yet is legalized marijuana, mm-hmm. which I don't smoke it anymore anyway, so it doesn't matter. I'm not missing out. But that that'll come. That'll eventually happen too, but it's like, you know, I, so it's it, it is strange. I mean, the one the biggest drawback to being in Texas is just not being actively involved or participating in right. in Hollywood as a, as a you know, and, uh, but, but it's also, uh, it's wild because being outside of the bubble, you know, there's a lot that is sort of like, uh, uh, quiet, a lot of, lot, a lot has quieted down inside of me and my perception has changed a lot and how I, you know, really see things and, uh, and, and I feel like there's, you know, I, I, I don't have a lot of the manicness that, that, mm-hmm. that I, that I perceive out here. I could be completely wrong, but I, I perceive a certain kind of manic tendency out here to have to, you know, have to be relevant, have to do this, have to, got, I gotta, I have to have my, I have, to, I mean, it's like all of this, you know, like mm-hmm. this mad race, you know, for, for a finish line that just keeps getting further and further away. And, and again, it goes back to my experience studying with Manu, who, who, 
you know, since he had passed away, uh, you know, in 2005, the, you know, not having, not having him as a spiritual guide in a physical sense anymore, it's kind of come back full circle since I've been down there. All the stuff that I learned from him has sort of to resurface a bit, you know, and, uh, and so, you know, com- coming back out here, you know, is, is, is a lot more fun for me now than it, than it kind of ever has been. I almost feel, you know, reborn again in a way. What made you move there? My kids. You know, my ex-wife is from Texas, uh, and uh, her whole family, you know, is from Texas. Her, um, my ex-father, my ex-father-in-law is the Southern Baptist minister of Gorman, Texas. Uh, a really, really great guy. Um, and uh, and I just when well well when when my daughter was born me and my ex weren't really together really at the time we had started dating in high school and uh and i just wasn't sure if like you know i didn't i didn't know enough about a successful relationship from my experience growing up mm-hmm. to apply anything to trying to have one especially in my early 20s i i just didn't know how to do anything like that and then and after my daughter was born we we moved in together f- for a while uh, living in Los Angeles, and it just didn't, uh, you know, uh, for whatever reason, it didn't work out, you know, and she ended up moving back to Texas. Uh, and then a number of years later, we ended up getting back together again and, and trying to work it out. And uh, my son was born and and uh, but but she had already been, you know, kind of established down there. And when I got down there and everything, and when I saw sort of this, um, you know, you can call it like a hangover from like the atomic era or whatever. It's kind of like as close as you can get to like, you know, 1950s America it still kind of exists down there. I'm not a religious person or anything, but, you know, the whole Christian morality and the the ethics and all of that, it bleeds into everything. And there's just a, a, a much slower, simpler uh, uh, pace than what I would, than what I grew up with, mm-hmm. especially out here in Los Angeles. I mean, my experience in Los Angeles was really wild, uh, and, uh, and how fast everything happens out here, how fast kids grow up, how fast kids have certain experiences and all of that and everything, all the influences. And, and you, I just, I, I just wanted something different for my kids. That's were, all. were you drinking and doing drugs and stuff? Um, well, when you were young, well, sh- yes, yeah. I mean, it was you know there was uh, there was certainly an element of that that was that was a part of the whole scene. I mean, especially more because I was into the whole hip hop scene, so it was really more about at that time period or anything. It was really more about just you know forty ounces and blunts. You know what I mean? It wasn't uh, uh, you know the hip hop movement at that time was really anti narcotics, and uh, and people who did uh, did the heavy drugs were really frowned upon. Uh, in, in that whole scene. So that was, that was a great benefit in a lot of ways. Um, uh, being, uh, being, uh, uh, you know, a part of that whole, that whole movement at the time, because, you know, the crack epidemic was just ruining families in the inner cities as it still does today. But then it was just absolutely to its extreme. Um, and, uh, and the hip hop movement coming out of those inner cities was really heavily affected, uh, family members, parents, you know, uh, uh, children, whatever you name it, it was a, there was such a heavy uh, effect that that uh, uh, that uh, you know there was a, the backlash was kind of in the cultural mm-hmm. aspect of it was like you know don't 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 mess with all that stuff you know. To go back to something we were talking about a second ago, was that tough being with your the mother of your daughter, and then you guys breaking up, and then getting back together, and then breaking up again. 
Yeah. Um, well, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's. I mean, it's sure. It's been. It's probably been more difficult on my on my kids than anything else. Um, you know, I. I uh, like I said, my my mom and dad split up when I was one. My dad, I think he might. I don't know if he's on. I mean, his his final marriage that he's on his final marriage his final <laughs> marriage he's on right now is extremely successful and it's it's going great. But if I remember correctly, I think he's I think it's the fifth or sixth. Mm-hmm. You know, for him, my mom never remarried and never really uh, uh, found a long term um, boyfriend or relationship that was uh, positive or or beneficial to to anybody. So I just didn't have any kind of clue whatsoever what a real relationship was all about i'm still pretty clueless you know to be honest and uh and um and it and it and it's and it's been a point of of a personal frustration for me for many years uh and then and then i couple that all you know along with the the uh the lifestyle of being a professional actor that you know how much i'm on the road how much i'm gone that was a major factor also in in um in the deterioration of of my relationship with my ex was the not being there and that didn't matter whether we were living in los angeles or not because she she would say well you know when you know because when we were living together in texas you know she's she she'd be like you know you're just gone all the time i mean you know wouldn't it be different when we were in la and i was like well think back to when we lived together in la i was gone all the time she was like yeah yeah you were i was yeah it doesn't matter where we live i'm gonna have to go here to film i'm gonna have to go there to film i'm gonna have to you know do stuff it's it's just that's just the nature of the beast uh but um but raising uh raising our kids down there you know absolutely has been a massive benefit uh uh for them you know in their lives especially my daughter uh you know she just has you know she has blossomed uh you know um due to the uh, the environment that that she grew up in there and uh and Are you guys uh, in Houston? Outside of Houston, about an hour north, you know, out in the right. suburbs. Yeah, we have not talked about Skittles yet, and oh, I know God, that yes. Skittles has played an important role in both of our podcast, both of our lives. <laughs> on my, my podcast, trust me, my life feels like life. a podcast sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it came up on my show because on the Thursday show we used to talk about which are the best flavor of Skittles, and then it just turned to, like we'd rank them, and then it turned into a whole thing. How what? What does Skittles have to do with your uh, it's life? It's just a, it's a, it's really just a, a kind of a silly. Uh, we call it the Skittles War. Um, myself, this, and an actor from Pennsylvania, a guy named Bobby Ben, uh, really, really funny guy. He, uh, you know, I, I do this thing called donut porn occasionally, where, uh, where I, I film my sexy donuts and talk <laughs> in a sexy donut voice about my donuts. And, uh, and at some point, uh, there was something about donuts. I don't know. You know, Twitter is just, an, it's just an insanity. It's just an absolute insanity, especially nowadays. I've never seen it more insane than, than, than nowadays. But that said, there was something about donuts and he had mentioned something about, well, if you couldn't have any donuts, could he at least have some Skittles? I don't know where it came from because I didn't mention anything about Skittles. And I, and I just made a comment like, no, no Skittles for Bobby. And he's like, <laughs> I don't get any Skittles. I'm like, no, never. You're never getting any Skittles. And then it just, turned into this you know kind of like doing silly little you know vignettes and videos (laughs) and stuff about you know skittles and like i i mean i've done some really ridiculous ones like where i go into a a hotel room and there's skittles on every shelf that they've (laughs) they they knew ahead of time i was going to get there and and then a family of people uh who went to a a convention that i was at they all brought me skittles (laughs) 
Uh, yes, and I, I used to get Skittles at live shows. Right. People would bring them to me. So, and then I did. I have a grapefruit tree in my front yard, so I went and I attached, you know, uh, several dozen packets of Skittles <laughs> to my grapefruit tree and had a Skittles tree, and, <laughs> and it's all and it all ends up being, you know, like this hashtag No Skittles for Bobby, and so so Bobby started doing videos where he's trying to get Skittles. But everybody's on Team Corin, so he can't get it. Nobody will give him any any Skittles. So, <coughs> and what Excuse I'm going to mess it up, El Cazzo? Yeah, El Cazzo is my nemesis. <laughs> I I uh, I'm not a huge. Um, year, years ago, I did. Uh, you know, I do these conventions and did a Q and A, and during the Q and A's, somehow it got it got brought up that I'm not a cat person. Not that I don't like cats or anything. I'm just like I just don't want to live with them. Basically, is the is the was is the gist of it. And then I like to joke a bit, you know. I, I like to keep things light as possible, and because uh, uh, everything is so heavy and dark these days, <laughs> we need some light at the end of the tunnel. Right, some cat light. <clears throat> yes. So 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 I I you know when when I said the thing about you know cats and not, not wanting to live with them and all of that, there was like uh, you know. A lighthearted backlash on on Twitter and social media and stuff about oh well yeah you watch out for him he doesn't like cats and then all <laughs> the cat people started getting me and and suddenly out of nowhere sprang this I don't know who it is but sprang this this uh, this fictional character named Catso Nemec <laughs> who who terrorizes me on Twitter with cat stuff and and like anytime I post a photo or anything like that like. Uh, to the, 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 the person will decorate it with cat stuff and this, and Katso is a calico, is a, is an ornery calico and, uh, that loves tequila and, uh, <laughs> and is always drunk all the time. It's a, it's a, it's a drunk calico. Uh, and, uh, it is, I mean, some people at first were, were offended for me. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't get offended very easy. <laughs> Uh, as it is, and uh, and when when Katso first started doing stuff, I I started really hamming me up. Uh, and, you know, some people were like, "Oh, how dare you do that? That's just so rude!" Like you know, like photoshopping my face on like a really heavy set guy with moobs and like you know, <laughs> food all over his chest and like calling me fat, uh, fat coronemic and all this stuff. And 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 I thought it was hilarious myself. And other people were really rightly offended, and people reported the site and like the Catso got sh- the first Catso <laughs> site got shut down on Twitter and, oh, and had to come back and create another Catso site. And now finally people because i stick up for Katso, even though Katso <laughs> is my nemesis uh i stick up for for Katso's right to be annoying <laughs> and uh yeah so that's that's it's very amusing uh uh you know tw- twitter for me has always been a lot of fun um only in recent times it's just like you know with the with the insanity that's happening in the political scene and all of that which i really try to stay out of uh, but it's just it just is bleeding over into everything now, and you know, I mean, I'll I'll post I'll post comments that have nothing to do with politics whatsoever, and someone will go, yeah, and fuck Trump, and I'll be, how did I mean I don't care anyway because I'm not Republican, I'm not Democrat, I'm not uh, you know liber- liberal, I'm not conservative, I'm just me, I'm just a guy trying to survive in this world, and I see whatever benefits pros and cons we've had with 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 anybody who's been a president since I since I've been old enough to think about it you know and uh, and I'm just not like uh, you know I, I'm just I'm just not going to get crazy about it. I'm not going to lose my mind over all of this you know and uh 
And so it's, it hasn't become as fun lately because I just like, like, it just seems like people just can't let up a little bit here. You know, there's, this is not the, let me just tell you guys, this is not the end of the world. It just doesn't matter. These four years, a next four years, whatever. This is not the end of the world. This is not the end of this country. This is not the end of you. <laughs> you know, everybody's going to survive all of this. If we go back in history, you'll see that there's been a lot of ups and downs and, uh, and it's going to be all good. You can take the air out a little bit. I promise you we're going to be okay. We're anemic. It was delightful having you on the show. Thanks. Thank you. I want to tell the listeners I'm on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Allison Rosen is where you go. There's different reward levels. You can get behind the scenes stuff, photos. There's an activity feed. Um, there's bonus episodes, access to a live stream, all sorts of stuff. Uh, so much access to me. You'll beg me to leave you alone. Patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. Jeff, where do we go to find you? You can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Colonel Jeff Fox. And Corin, Joseph, yes. tell them where to find you and also uh, plug anything you'd like them to look out for. Well, uh, you go, well, yeah, you can go to lulu.com and, and you can uh, web search. I mean, you can do a, a search on lulu.com of Venice High, V-E-N-I-C-E-H-I-G-H. And... Um, that's your novel. Get a copy of the of the scripted novel, as I call it, which is which is based. We didn't really talk too much about it, but it's based on my. It's loosely based on what my life experience was like growing up as a graffiti artist in um, in Los Angeles, uh, and uh, you know some of my experiences is is in there, um, and um, and then I also have a photo book uh, of Mickey Avalon of the first photo shoot that we did that cool. became his 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 uh, um, album cover, and that's called Pimps paradise and uh and then i have another one uh which uh which is the name of it is slipping my mind but it's listed under there under my name corin nemic on lulu.com and it's it's a bunch of photos of my street art from the last number of years uh my twitter is i am as an in instant message corin nemic i am corin nemic and uh and if you are interested in uh in checking out uh, the the art that i do and whatnot i am the 169 on instagram that's t h e and the numbers 1 6 and 9 all squished together in a nice neat little pack <laughs> and uh and then i i do not have facebook so if you're following anybody with coronemic on facebook it's, it's not, not me not you thank you again listeners thank you for listening i love you goodbye hey do you know about the allison rosen show Yeah, Alison Rosie.